Welcome back, everybody, to the Classic Rock Podcast. And this month, it is all about prog. Special guest is Steve Hackett, who will join us to talk about Foxtrot at 50 and the Hackett Highlights Tour, which comes to the UK this September. But before that, and to set the narrative for today's show, let's begin with a real prog classic. Graph Generator and Theme One, that uh, from 1971's Born Hearts. Uh, in Italy, where they toured, they were mobbed 
Back then, 71, riot police, the full works. You want to look back and see some of the newspaper reports of the time. And those of you, of course, that used to listen to the uh, Radio Radio 1 in the BBC will remember that because John Peel used to actually close the uh, day's uh, radio on Radio 1 to that very track. And of course, it was also used by Tommy Vance on the Friday Rock Show. So he said it was all going to be about prog rock today because we've been back to the 80s, we've done the 90s, we've done bits of the 70s with the glam. So I thought it was time we indulged. Uh, So who and what were the greatest prog rock bands and albums? Now, a lot of it, I suppose, depends on where you are, Europe or the US, Canada, etc. And what era you're from as well. There was a poll run by Rolling Stone. This was back in 2011. And they said, uh, you know, who were the best prog rock band? And I don't know if they said, well, this poll was not even close. Not close. Winning by a landslide. Rush. Hmm. Head of Pink Floyd, Genesis, Jethro Tull, King Crimson, ahead of the lot. Thing is, if you ran that poll, maybe in the European press in the UK, as much as I love Rush, I don't think they'd be coming in front of the bands that we mentioned there. And talking about the greatest track or the greatest album back in 2015, Rolling Stone did the, the same again, which was the, the best, the very best prog rock album. Dark Side of the Moon. I don't know. I maybe it was just me, but uh, different eras, I suppose. But I, you know, I grew up in the seventies. I remember that with the the cool kids at school were into Floyd. You know, they were into Floyd. Some of us we didn't get it, but we still bought the albums. You know, just to try and look cool. Dark Side of the Moon was, I suppose, accessible. But I listen to it now, and I think. hmm. For me, it hasn't travelled time well. Uh, going back to Rush, Geddy Lee once said about this track that he hated it. He said, we thought this was the worst song on the album. What is it? Well, if you want to see the Time Machine tour, they played this entire album from beginning to end. And this is arguably, again, for me, it's not it's not my number one, but for many people, this is right up there amongst the greatest prog tracks of all time. A Monday warrior, mean, mean stride. Today's Tom Sawyer, mean, mean pride.
Sawyer by Rush, of course, who are very, very sadly missed indeed. Forget about prog and glamour, whatever rock you want to call it. They were one of the all-time greatest bands. The live show was just an experience, wasn't it? And um, if you got to see them, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. But for some... The, the real spirit of prog rock can only be summed up by one band and one song. 21st century schizoid man, of course, King Crimson, the song dedicated to a guy by the name of Spiro Agnew. Don't know who he is? Well, he was the 39th U.S. Vice President, and uh, he worked under Richard Nixon, of course, a very interesting character, if you want to go and do a bit of uh, history and look him up. Um, There is a new film coming out soon called In the Court of the Crimson King, which is where, of course, Schizoid Man came from. The trailer does look amusing, to uh, say the least. And I love looking back as well at some of the reviews that were uh, dished out at the time. Robert Chris Gow, who was uh, with the Village Voice, he summed it up uh, by concluding with two words. And the second one was shit. (laughs) It's incredible, isn't it? Absolutely incredible. And yet here you are, what, we are 50, 60 years later and everybody realising it as a bona fide classic. Pete Townsend, of course, of the time was quoted and he does know these things. And of course they've done Quadrophenia and Tommy. He called it an uncanny masterpiece. And if you've forgotten what an uncanny masterpiece sounds like, Here it is.
That is uh, just a masterpiece. Nothing uncanny about that, is there? King Crimson from In the Court of the Crimson King. Of course, Robert Fripp these days can be uh, seen on that uh, hilarious uh, YouTube send-up where uh, he and his uh, uber-talented wife, Toya Wilcox, uh, do their uh, Sunday lunchtime sessions, and very good they are indeed. And so too was she, by the way. I saw her live back in the 1980s. Great live performer. Uh, But just before we get to our special guest today, Steve Hackett, I want to play you in with this. When I heard this first time, it was one of those uh, real wow moments. You stop and go, wow, what was that? Never heard anything like it before, the the intro in particular. Uh, And we mentioned critics. And that man, Chris Gow again at The Village Voice, he had a go at this band as well. He talked about King Crimson, had a go about them, and then uh, said about this band, well, they simply lacked the intelligence and the conviction of European prog rock. How right was he? Well, this track has uh, run up 425 million plays on Spotify. 425 million. And it's a bit like Toto by Africa. You can imagine that every five minutes this track is being played somewhere. A fabulous band. We featured them last year, by the way. It's Kansas. So if you missed it, go back in the uh, podcast and you'll find a great piece with the singer of the band, the lead man today, uh, Ronnie Platt, who celebrated his birthday, actually, yesterday. Anyway, enough of this. Let's have some of this. Carry on my wayward son. There'll be peace when you are done. Lay your weary head to rest. Don't you cry no more.
two albums you did in 2021. First time you've ever done that inside a year. You've had a sold out tour. You've barely had time to actually return, recoup, and you're planning to get back on the road again with Foxtrot at 50 and, of course, uh, the Hackett Highlights Tour. Now, how would you describe that, that feeling when you got out on stage on that first night of that tour um, last late summer, early autumn? Uh, it was a great feeling to be back. Um, yeah. I think a, a, a lot of musicians really live for it. If they're touring musicians, um, suddenly to not be able to do it because of the pandemic was... Um, it was more than disappointing, of course. So um, that was a reason for for lots of recorded product during during lockdown. Um, it was a very productive, very productive time uh, for all sorts of reasons. But um, but nothing can replace the the power of of live work. Both, I think, for the for the audience to be re-energized and um, bonded through that. And um, and also it's healing for us to be able to do that. Me, the band, just about every touring musician I know, um, they all get a huge buzz out of out of a show going well. You know, you you pile in. Do you ever had a feeling during in lockdown that there was a possibility that playing live again might not happen? Um, I never felt that. I always thought this this is a temporary hiccup I mean it's been rather longer than anyone could have predicted of course uh, but um, uh, I am all I can say is that I'm very pleased to be going for it again so we have a world tour booked of, of you know, six months of, of dates at this point and um, we're honoring commitments for a lot of postponed shows and then later on in the year we'll be doing the whole of Foxtrot so that album from 1972 we were doing that but it, it means there's a lot to re to remember and i'm about to start rehearsing with the band from monday um so that we can um address you know most of those most of those tunes of course yes we'll come back and we'll do a refresher for foxtrot uh, but um it's it's um it's a lot to remember it's always a challenge doing doing mm. the live stuff that's half of the fun, uh, wrestling with it and seeing if you can, um, seeing if you can pull it off. And uh, I always go at it with, you know, some trepidation, thinking, "Hey, I hope everything's going to work, etc., cetera, etc." Cetera. But there's nothing like it when it takes off like a rocket. It's um, a lot of people getting excited about this Foxtrot Fifty, the tour, your your second album yeah. with Genesis, both. Phil had joined um, for nursery crime in, in one. Right. What were your expectations for, for Foxtrot? Because crime wasn't perhaps the the initial success that maybe uh, you'd hoped for. There was a lot of comment at the time as well when you look back based on the fact that, well, we weren't very happy with the production. Uh, the musical content was good, but the, the production. Well, there was always the live version. Um, by the time we did Genesis Live, uh, performing tracks like uh, Water of the Skies in front of a live audience. Um, it took on a life of its own when you get the roar of the crowd as the Mellotron starts up at the beginning. So um, the sci-fi aspect of that and the, the futuristic sound of, of um, 
the technology that we had at the time, what was cutting edge at that time. But I, I think it's the quality of, of the songs that uh, still resonates with people. And um, only the other day I was doing an interview with a guy called Nigel Pierce, who was telling me he's writing a Beatles book and he says he's got uh, a John Lennon talking to Bob Harris saying um, there were a couple of bands that he considered to be true sons of the Beatles. And one of them was Genesis and the other one's ELO. And um, it's interesting that apparently he uh, used to get um, all the Genesis albums sent to him from, from Nursery Crime onwards, sent to him in, in, in New York. And I'm just trying to picture John Lennon listening to this stuff, <laughs> thinking like maybe it was a, a kind of um, a connection with home. The And so I'm very happy the fact that we, you know, he had our ear for so long, the Beatles did, of course, you know, but then the fact that, that, that some of that was reciprocal and of course never met him uh, and far too late, but you know, the Beatles' influence is, is endemic. It goes on, runs through all of our, uh, you know, all of our backgrounds. Lennon was, was 10 years, was 10 years older than, than all of us. Um, and uh, his like will never be seen again, of course. The production on the, the album, you were, you were supposed to have John Anthony produce again. He'd done uh, Crime and Trespass, but... Um, yeah. It was said at the time, costs were getting a bit out of hand. You also tried Tony Platt. Um, and you finally settled with Dave uh, Hitchcock, who's worked with Camel and, and John Burns. Yes, that's right. Um, so the, the team was changing, I think, you know, largely um, choice of record company at that time. Uh, but uh, Dave Hitchcock uh, became a pal uh, we used to hang out together and talk about how the music should shape up, etc. And also John Burns was um, was a very hands-on <clears throat> engineer, very, very clever himself, and um, gave us um, what what we needed at that time, which was which was confidence to be able to say, yeah, some of these early recordings are really, you know, worth preserving and uh, you guys are good at this, and um, he created a very nice atmosphere. It was a very, it was a very happy working atmosphere. I seem to recall. Uh, Tony Stratton Smith, who founded Charisma, said uh, when he when he heard it that this was the album that makes you. How did you feel when you heard comments like that? Um, well, I I have to say when we did Supper's Ready, uh, which is a great long piece taking up most of one side. Um, I, I was worried that perhaps we'd gone a little bit too far and, and was the record company going to like it? Were fans going to like it? And um, all of my fears were completely allayed um, because obviously it's validated itself and revalidated itself over time. But it was all important that, that Charisma should like it. And Tony Stratton Smith absolutely loved it. So um, he got it in a big way. And I think it's a very varied album, you know, lots of writers uh, all kicking in with ideas and um, there's lots of weird, wonderful stuff on it. So um, I think that I, I always used to say, you know, Selling England by the Pound was my favourite Genesis album. But I, I would say that um, just in terms of the scope of the writing, I think that uh, although perhaps Selling England has probably got um, my best guitar playing with Genesis. Nonetheless, there are certain gems on it, on 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 Foxtrot, and I'm very 
proud of the fact that um, I'd done the only Genesis track where I was allowed to play it entirely on my own, which was at Horizons, which Horizons. precedes um, Supper's Ready. So working in like a sort of hors d'oeuvre for the main course, which is yeah. Supper's Ready. Somebody wrote uh, that the instrumental Horizons was the aperitif before the ascent up Everest. It's time for a bit of agnostic guitar. But who it was who said it's about creating a film for the ear rather than the eye? Well, actually, I think that's a quote from me because yes, it um, is. <laughs> I, I, I've had a lot of time to, to think about uh, music and, and the way uh, so much of rock music works. When it starts to incorporate other influences, um, rock can transcend its, its humble and simple origins, nothing wrong with, with the way rock and roll started and, and, you know, teenage dreams put to music, all very fine, loved all of that. But then when it started to look outside the box um, towards other genres, towards classical music, towards folk, towards jazz, and very successfully, um, making this thing up that we now call latterly progressive music. Sorry to be so long-winded about this, but um, mm. it's just, you know, that's the power. That's the power of it, really. Um, and I'm still all of those genres and um, very proud that we managed to, you know, encapsulate so much of that, um, of that on that Foxtrot album. 
Yeah, but you came up with some very uh, quotable lines. And when you look back at them now, uh, they still resonate. Um, it creates for the listener a, an adventure and an odyssey, which it, it certainly does. And then when you were talking earlier there about the fans, would they take to it or not? Um, you did yes. a quote where you said that, you know, we may not recognise it at the time, but the, the audience, the true owners will see it as a Mona Lisa. They'll say, look no further for we have found it. I mean, it's almost a biblical term. Yeah, sorry to to to, to do that, but I, I no, think no, I think it's um, it's great. I mean, the the, the quotes carried down the years is it's brilliant. Oh, well, 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 good. I I see. I I think it's it's very easy for bands and musicians to always look to the future and and to say, you know, yes, my latest album, of course, is the best because blah 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 blah, blah because I can sing better now, I can play better now, you know. It's more crunchy, um, but uh, at some point, you know, fans go, um, well, yeah, I saw this when I was 16, 17, 18, 19, and, and I think um, the rage of hormones mixes with the imagination of, of your heroes, and you're always going to say, well, you know, for me, it's an earlier era, it's going to be Sergeant Pepper, etc., because I'm, I'm of, of a certain age, but you know, so whilst that's the holy grail for, for those who are chasing musical innovation, uh, it's interesting that, that music from that time still speaks to three-year-olds. Mm. Uh, you know, people are constantly saying, oh, my, 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 my son or my daughter really likes that. Yes, you know, and, and so, you know, perhaps it's a sign of great music that it can communicate to kids. And I, I'm always thrilled when people say, well, it's not my 80-year-old grandmother who, who loves this. It's actually my eight-year-old who's learning to play and is impressed with this enough to say, yeah, this is still current. This is what, this is what inspires. And so it's, it's, it's the real deal. You, you talked about the relationships at the time and uh, the band members, and there was a, a good atmosphere around the place. I'm trying to imagine what it was like down at the Una Billings School of Dance in, in Shepherd's Bush, where you were sat underneath the refectory with the gobstopper machine, where uh, you couldn't be too serious for too long because you could hear this clamp, clamp, clamp coming from upstairs. It must have caused a smile or two. Yeah, I think when you've got 20 or so young girl dancers all, all doing their first tap dance steps and that was you know very much part of part of the unibidding school of of tv and dance and, and whatever it was um uh so uh yeah what, whatever we were trying to do um you know here, here's us you know downstairs probably um 10 15 years on from then in, in in our in our 20s and they were doing that it's it's it was rather sweet to imagine whatever they were doing at that time and I would imagine you know many of those kids probably stars now you know um because yeah it starts young I know that Phil Collins started young that was the connection with Una Billings his mother um had a stage school with with Una and um and so he was he was active from a very early age he was down the mines at a very early age you know you see these sort of knitting patterns photographs of himself and his sister sitting there in 
these sort of Carlisle sweaters and, and what have you. And then, and then, of course, he's in um, singing the part of the artful Dodger in uh, in in Oliver, Lionel Bart's uh, hugely successful musical. And um, and so you know that it's all that connection. And at one point, Phil said to me uh, with Zifarelli's uh, Romeo and Juliet film, he said, you know, he was up for the part of Romeo himself and his girlfriend at at the time, and they were very sad not to have have gotten it. But um, uh, yeah, I guess history could have taken another turn if if um, if uh, Phil had headed from Una Billings School of TV Dance, etc., to uh, off to Rada and doing that, perhaps. Um, uh, he would have come across with a very different persona other than the all-rounder that he became. And, you know, not just as a, as a singer and, 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 and the star that he became, but also the extraordinary drummer that, that, um, uh, that he was. Listen, people are obviously going to be getting uh, quite excited at the thought of hearing Supper's Ready here. Looking back, what do you remember about the time where you playing this for the for the first time and you had to produce pamphlets? Whose idea was this for the crowd so they could actually follow what was going along? Yeah, that sounds section. like program music. This is a bit like, you know, people sitting down to understand, you know, the recitative with opera. Um, <laughs> I think it was because I'd, I'd seen some stuff live, um, one or two people who were, who were doing this kind of... Um, musical continuum idea um, of linking a number of songs together and I suggested to the band that perhaps we could do something like this and it would be defining and indeed I think we did the, the longest ever tune that any band has ever done. I'm sure there's another band somewhere, you know, um, some tribe out somewhere who's done something longer but you know uh, this thing went on for almost half an hour and um, I said earlier, yes, you know, a film for the ear, the idea of, of the action and, and narrative and um, changes and scene changes uh, with a band that can turn on a dime. It's very important to be able to come up with musical surprises. So first time through, I think that was quite a surprise for the audience that when we suddenly, you know, belt into something like Willow Farm and, and when we were doing Drury Lane many, many years ago, I think in 73, uh, yeah, Peter Gabriel suddenly, um, he had a, a, a body harness and uh, for, the, for the last vocal refrain, suddenly he's sort of swinging in the air and um, singing at the same time. So, um, yeah, the stuff that might have been reserved for, uh, for Peter Pan suddenly became part of, of rock and roll. Um, many years ago now, but part of many, you know, happy memories. I, I do think of it as a, as a, as a film for the, for the ear, uh, music that's very visual in a pre-video uh, era. Um, now it's all films, of course, isn't it? As soon as there's a song out, somebody does a film about it. But, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, but, but to have the music actually create pictures in the mind when the, when, the, when the lyrics are that good, perhaps, you can take people on a journey, if not an odyssey, and... Supper's Ready is certainly that, so none more so than, than the album Foxtrot in it and its um and its totality.
did you really not know when Peter Gabriel appeared on stage in the red dress with the fox's head? Did you really not know that he was planning to do this? I think it was uh, Dublin's uh, National Stadium, wasn't it, first time? He, he kept it under wraps and um, would, would often do that, that sort of thing um, because I think he was worried that if he ran ideas by the band, they might say, you know, I don't think you should do that. Um, um, he said very early on when I was about to join the band, he said, oh, I'm not sure that composition by committee really works. Nonetheless, you know, we are a, a singer's, sorry, a, 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 um, a songwriter's uh, collective. So it's, it's like a kind of musical co-op. Um, and, you know, that can work very, very well. But I understand why he didn't want to put any ideas in front of the band that um, required their sanction. Difficult enough when you're writing songs, um, let alone discussing wardrobe. So, you know, Pete decided to depict the action on the, on the cover of, of Foxtrot. I think it was very much an afterthought, the idea there's a fox in a, in, in, in a, in a red dress, um, <laughs> which looked more like it was something from Peter Blake from collages and montages. Um, but nonetheless, Pete decided to define it and, and to live those songs live and I think it was very very important for the band's development and very important for the band to get written about in those days we were doing some of these complicated tunes live and people were just going off to the bar no one really cared but until there was that photograph and things talking about initially I think journalists started to review his show as distinct from the band so he was the lead singer and um, you know that created certain problems within the band. I, mm. I never had a problem with it myself, but um, people have different agendas in bands. So um, yes, you hope it's going to be a merry band that's going to ride off into the sunset together, but um, it's very rarely the case. Um, witness the Beatles, for instance, you know, oh, why didn't they stay together forever? Yes. Because people have places to go, things to do. Um, and um, uh, very often, you know, the need to work with other people and expand their own individual writing, etc. And sometimes bands are, are are fine about that. And other bands say, you know, I'm sorry, you can't have a parallel solo career. So it's a bit like saying, you know, it's it's communism. We own you. Mm. And um, mm. state in, intervention doesn't always work. So in Peter's case, he decided to leave, and I decided to leave myself. Nothing to do with the music. Uh, we we love the music. Um, and I still honour the music, politics free. At the end of the song, who was yes. it that picked up Mike Rutherford playing a wrong bass note? I mean, <laughs> if you've stayed with that song for the entire length of time and you've gone through and, and understood the various seven stages, what's going on here? Uh, who was it right. that picked up the fact that there was a wrong bass note on? And I, what I did I... like was the fact that when they did the remaster, they kept yeah. it in. Right. Well, I don't know. I, I know that, that um, uh, Lee Pomeroy, who's a fantastic bass player, who's worked with masses of people, Take That, and um, masses, ELO, um, he's worked with me, masses, he's been in masses of bands. Um, we were, first time I ever worked with him, he said, I know your stuff. So we'd, we'd have a you know, rehearsal 
And all we did was just run through the set nonstop. He knew everything, uh, like a walking encyclopedia. And he said, oh, by the way, uh, I think it's the penultimate note on the end of uh, Firth of Fifth. It's a wrong note. And I don't think <laughs> anyone had ever noticed. And when you when you listen to the keyboard chord and, and the bass note, you had to agree, yes, okay. So we corrected that, of course, all these years down the line. But of course, you know, whenever these albums are, 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 are remixed, I mean, usually... Um, these things don't get fixed because um, I guess authentic authenticity, even if there's a wrong one in there um, at times, it doesn't really matter. I think so much of, of what a Genesis was doing in those early days, we were deliberately playing chords off of each other where they, they didn't necessarily fit, but we would crossfade them from one to another. So it was part of the appeal of of the band. So there, there are many wrong notes, but most of the time you can't hear them, luckily. <laughs> Lastly, when you look back at the the, the critics in the yeah. 60s and 70s, um, I mean, this was this was some profession. We had the, the legend, especially the American critics, you know, the Village Voice, uh, Chris Gow and uh, Lester Bangs over at, uh, at Rolling Stone magazine. Uh, the Philadelphia Daily News summing up said, Genesis still has trouble putting songs together, but they sing and play beautifully. That was the review of um, Foxtrot. Did you used to sit and devour the, the, the critics? Well, I think that um, initially um, America didn't get Genesis. In, in the early days, American audiences turned up to rock concerts and they wanted a boogie and we were giving them anything but boogie. Um, uh, we, we weren't at the point where we were ready to blitz them with volume. We had so many acoustic passages and of course, uh, American audiences used to often shout those down and say so I used to dread those moments and then as the albums got louder and there was less acoustic work on them um, I found it much easier to get that across uh, particularly to colonial audiences um, it's just the way it was and then they they started to get it I think round about selling England by the pound where they realized that we represented all things English. We'd nailed our colors to the mast with the very title of the album. So if you're interested in England, go and see these guys, uh, they're English. And, um, and so we, we took on a kind of, uh, I mean, we, we weren't like the Beatles, but I, I think it was a bit like, here was some exotica for them, you know, whereas England had always wanted to be, English teenagers have always wanted to be American, they'd always wanted their hairstyles, the drain pipes, the whole, they wanted to be fonts, didn't they? This is it, Fonzie. Um, so um, I guess we became something, I hate to use the word quintessentially because it sounds like a very pretentious word, but we were quintessentially English for them. And, um, and Led Zeppelin, yeah, they were loud. They were the sex gods, but, you know, we were... We were wacky, we were different. Um, it was innovative, um, harmonically sophisticated, and you had to wait for the changes. And there would be a lot of su 
surprises along the line. And that's why I've compared it to film to say, um, you had to wait for the music to unfold. I mean, something like the, the, the very intro of, of, um, of Water of the Skies. I mean, we were playing, um, I'm trying to remember the name of the gig now. I think this is, um, it was somewhere in Canada where we were we were playing and then you know the intro starts up and a guy from from the from the crowd shouts out sounds like fucking beethoven and um many years later when i was playing in that same hall massey hall in toronto um i said to the crowd yeah, i remember that guy so when we do the intro i want you to all shout out on my cue sounds like fucking beethoven and the whole crowd did and then we stuck it up on on youtube of course and um and it, it was is. it was a great laugh but you know it was people were divided you see um we were doing shows with with other people and sometimes the crowd if you are a support band they don't always get it so we were supporting lou reed and uh, lou reed's audience really didn't really didn't get genesis um you can't do it. It's not like a supermarket where you can yeah. shove all those products on the same shelf and hope that they're going to sell to everybody. It's very specific that Genesis fans were very, they became very loyal and very widespread. Uh, but a band that's starting out has got to pay dues and it's got to defend its actions against um, its detractors. The musicians that we have to thank for getting you interested initially when you were a, when you were a kid in becoming a musician, The Shadows. Yes. And in particular, was it Man of Mystery? It was. Um, that was the first single I ever bought. Um, I still think it's a good melody with an interesting descending minor sequence um and um many years later of course i i got to meet um hank marvin who was uh, a hero of mine um and there were there were a whole a bunch of us who um uh, got together to wish him well he was going to relocate to australia and um uh, the people that were invited along to this do, there was Steve Howell, there was myself, there was Eric Clapton, Jeff Beck, David Gilmore. It was something that had been organized by Fender Guitars, and um, we all got together um, at the Shepherd's Bush Hilton. And um, it, it, was, it was just great, you know, that, that everybody was... Um, I've often compared it to um, the idea of a band of brothers all getting together to salute an older brother, an even older brother, um, trailblazers that the uh, that the Shads were. Um, so uh, he, uh, Hank, is a very self-effacing man, as all the guys were, funnily enough, there, and um, uh, it was a very, a very, very nice do to salute um as i say an older brother and it's great that he's still with us because we're losing so many at a, at a fast rate at the moment
That's very true. And you're uh, the the future for you um, after we've done this incredible year of, of uh, live shows all over the the world. What are your plans for uh, new music, etc., uh, moving into next year and beyond, or do you not plan that far in advance? Um, well, at the moment, um, I've recorded a few new things that are in a formative stages, work in progress, um, as indeed I am myself. Um, but I still thrill to new bits of equipment that happen, you know, the odd new guitar that I've acquired, and um, I'm still nuts about it. Um, I, I absolutely love working in music. It's um, the hunger for it doesn't go away. Um, the sheer excitement of the sound of the electric guitar or the beauty of the acoustic guitar or knowing occasionally when I can get my tonsils around a vocal and it sounds not half bad. I'm, I, I thrill to that. Well, my thanks to Steve Hackett for joining me today to talk about the show he's taking out on the road. Foxtrot at 50 and Hackett Highlights Tour kicks off in the UK in Swansea in September, runs through to October 12 when it concludes at Hammersmith Odeon, or whatever it is they call it these days. Now, prior to that, uh, there are shows all over the world. Germany and Italy in July. In June, if you're in Australia or New Zealand, the rescheduled shows there. April and May, it's the full-on Canadian and US tour with some new dates there. So if you haven't got some tickets, then uh, do go online and look at the website, Steve's website. It will update you. And it all kicks off with some European dates at the beginning of March on March the 6th in Belgium. So no excuse not to get out there and see the incredible show that he does put on. And that is it for this programme. Hope you've enjoyed revelling in some very fine progressive music and to play us out this month as it isn't only foxtrot at 50 on this upcoming tour but there are hackett highlights here's a track from the really very good surrender of silence album which was released just a couple of months ago and it's the opening track it's a brilliant track it's called obliterati so enjoy it and from me tim capel until next time bye bye for now